0: All right, so today what I want to look at is in a book um, originally written by a guy named E.F. We think it's Edward Fisher. Um, It became popular when a guy by the name of Thomas Boston was founded at one of his patrons' house and read it. And what it goes over is uh, the use of the law and, and what it is, where it comes from, how it applies to us. And it's a really cool concept. What he does is he takes, uh, there's three characters in this book. There is uh, Nomista, which we would call legalist if we wrote it today. Then there's Antinomista, who we would call the Antinomian, we wrote it today. And then there's Evangelista, which is the Christian, uh, the theologian of the bunch. And so Nomista and Antinomista are having an argument over whether or not the law ought to be the rule of conduct for the believer. And so you got Nomista over here saying, yes, the law. The the Christian is bound to obey the law. you got Antinomista over here saying, No, we've been freed from the law. We're not bound to obey it. And they bring their quibble to Evangelista, who in true theologian fashion says, It's not that simple. Or, it's complicated. And he gives us... So he basically asks them, So what do you mean by the law? And they both answer, rightly, the moral law vis-a-vis the Ten Commandments. And then he says, You're right, but there are three laws. He says that there is the law of works, the law of faith, and the law of Christ. And he says, now, which do you mean by those? And they say, well, we are not familiar with this. And so the whole book is him explaining these three laws. So I want to take a look at these three. They are found in the Bible and just kind of look at what they mean um, and how they apply to us keeping them. So, the law of works and the law of faith are both found in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. It says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So we see that this idea of the law of works and the law of faith are both biblical terms. Um, then the law of Christ comes into play in Galatians 6.2, and we'll look at that a little bit later. So one of my first questions when looking at this, and Thomas Boston in his notes on the book, uh, from the, what I've read, I haven't finished it, just kind of glosses over it and says, yes, there's other things referred to in the Bible as the law of, but these three summarize everything. So my first question was, is that really true? And so I want to take a look at uh, the other places in the Bible first that we see the law of, to see if these three, the law of works, the law of faith, and the law of Christ, really do justice to all of the, air quotes, laws um, that are found. But first let's work through these three so that we can understand what they mean, and then we'll look at if the other ones are uh, synonymous with these three. So first is the law of works, and we'll take the law of works and the law of faith together since they are in the same passage. Um, But before that, I wanna just kind of establish what is meant by the law. Now, in the book, they just all agree that the law means the moral law the Ten Commandments. And I agree, but I want to look at why, why do we believe that. And so really quickly, if you want to flip back a page to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, this is where I believe it, it settles what is meant by the law. For all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And what I want to key in here is uh, these terms of judged by or justified by. There's only one law that either condemns or justifies a man, and it's not the law of Moses. Moses. The only thing that anyone has ever been condemned by or justified by is the moral law that God set down in the Ten Commandments. But going back to the covenant of works with Adam, it is the moral law that we are culpable for before God. And so this language of being justified by or judged by, I think, seals the deal that we're talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments here. So then back to Romans chapter 3. And I want to start up at verse 19, because that's where I believe he kind of starts the the flow of this argument. In verse 9, he he quotes the Old Testament talking about how no one is righteous, all the way down through verse 18. And then verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So my first question when coming to to works of the law, law of faith, all of it, was to go back and say, what does it mean to be under the law? And this will come up in in a couple more passages. And I think from the context of this, we can determine that being under the law means at least being exposed to and I think there's more, but from this passage where it says, "Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable, uh, for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in His sight." You have to be exposed to it to be accountable to it. And if you read earlier in chapter two and three, uh, Paul goes into this idea of, um, you know, the Jews having the law, uh, but the Gentiles also having the moral law, and if the gentiles do what the moral law requires not having the written form of it then they obey it and so to be under the law means to be exposed to it and accountable under it and we'll circle back around and see why that's important Um, but that's that's what i believe it means to be under the law so the law of works and the law of faith we get to the contrast there in verse 21 What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by law of faith. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Boston describes this law of works in terms of the covenant of works. He calls it the law to be done that one must be saved. In other words, the law of works is keeping the moral law, the Ten Commandments, as a means of obtaining righteousness before God. We're pretty familiar with this law of works and law of faith, but just to keep them in their categories, law of works is obeying the moral law to be justified in the sight of Christ. Directly opposed to that is the law of faith. Thomas Boston describes this as the law of the gospel or the covenant of faith. He calls it the law to be believed that one must be saved. He also notes that the law of faith is not so properly called a law, so it's not a properly a law uh, but that it's an imitation of the Jews manner of speaking so I mean if you think about it a law tends to be do this or else this that's what a a proper law is and the law of faith isn't that the law of faith is the the offer of salvation believe on me there is no do this or else this it's this has been done on your behalf accepted and we're not That's not something that's totally foreign to us. I mean, the law of gravity isn't necessarily properly a law, more of a uh, descriptive of what reality is. And so that's the kind of law that this law of faith is, more of a description than a do this or the penalty will be this. Then we have, (coughs) thirdly, the law of Christ, and uh, the citation given for that is Galatians chapter 2. And my first thought was, why, why even bring this up? If you've got the law of works and the law of faith, I mean that, that pretty well sums it up. You either try to achieve it by works or you rest in Christ. But in Galatians 6.2, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So there is a law of Christ, and my first thought was, well is that is the law of Christ just the same as the law of faith? What's the difference there? And the reason I think there is a difference and this is a separate law is because Paul says here that if you bear one another's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. And we know that there's no action that we can take that will fulfill the law of faith. The law of faith is fulfilled in Christ's work. And so this can't be the same law of faith here that he's talking about the law of Christ, because he's saying if you bear one another burdens, you are fulfilling this law. So the law of Christ is definitely different than the law of faith, but we also know that the the law of works, first of all, cannot be fulfilled by human effort. And there's more to it than just bearing your brother's burden. So it's different than the law of works, and it's different than the law of faith. Boston describes this law as the law of the Ten Commandments as a rule of life in the hand of a mediator to believers already justified. He calls it the law of the Savior, binding his people to all the duties of obedience. So basically, he describes this law as once you've been saved, it's the same... um, The same descriptions, the same duties as described in the moral law of the Ten Commandments, but the motivation is different. It's not a law to be kept in order to earn salvation. It's a law to be kept in keeping with the new nature that Christ has given you. So we have the law of works, obeying the Ten Commandments to gain eternal life, the law of faith, trusting in Christ as a means of gaining eternal life, and the law of Christ which is obeying the Ten Commandments from a place of being justified um, from your new heart any questions about the three laws or what they mean or how they interact at this point that was a really quick rundown Okay. if you think of any feel free to stop me so there's, there's three other laws <clears throat> that we find in the New Testament where it says, the law of. And two of them are found in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, <clears throat> 1 through 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So my first question in reading this is, are these two laws that are set against each other, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death, are these two laws synonymous with laws that we've already discussed, Or are they separate? Any thoughts on that? Is this a different wording of laws we've already discussed, or should these be named as separate laws and given separate definitions? I would
1: think that just using the quick rundown that you gave for the law of faith, um, that would be synonymous with. Because he modifies it by saying that that law has set you free in mm-hmm. Christ Jesus. So it's mm-hmm. past tense,
0: and it's in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> that's, that's exactly the way I looked at it was, <clears throat> is there any other law that can give life? No. So this has to be the law of faith. Uh, and then <clears throat> vice versa, is what law brings sin and death? The law of works. So I would definitely agree this this is a, a different way of speaking of the law of works and the law of faith. And really all of them, I don't know if I would call any of them a law proper. Really what these are is are our relationships to the moral law. So you could say that the law of works is our relationship um, to the moral law in terms of keeping it. The law of faith is a relationship to the moral law in terms of how it's kept by Christ, and then the law of Christ is also a relationship to how we interact with the law from the state of being a Christian. The other place that we find a law is also in Romans, and you don't have to look too far. It's in Romans 7, so you just look up the page or turn it back one. And start in verse 21... But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So two questions here. We have a new law, the law of God. And then we also have the law of sin. And so the question is, is this law of God a new law? And is this law of sin the same law that was talked about in chapter 8? Or is it a different law? Same? Why?
1: Because...
0: Yeah, so what, <clears throat> what gives me pause to say that it's the same is that in, in chapter 8, we have um, the law of sin and the spirit of life. And so we say those are covenant of works and covenant of faith, or, or law of works, law of faith. The difference in, in chapter 7 is that, well, let me say this. In chapter 8, you can say if you're following the law of sin, you're not a Christian, because we're saying that is the law of works. And if you're trusting in the law of works, you're not a Christian because no man can be saved by the law of works. But here in chapter 7, and there are some people who believe that what Paul's talking about here is a pre-conversion experience. I hold the view that this is a post-conversion experience and that Paul's talking about the the inner struggle of wanting to obey Christ but having indwelling sin um, and ongoing sanctification. So the difference in chapter 7 of what's talked about here is the law of God. With my inner being, I follow the law of God. With my flesh, I follow the law of sin. Is I can't equate that law of sin here as trying to obey the law of works because we have a a saved person, a regenerate person, who still follows the law of sin. So it could be argued that um, this believer slips into trying to uphold the law in his flesh. But I'm not convinced completely. So the question okay, there... Be
1: very with the of the yeah, go ahead. You know, you... Verse 1, or do you not know the Bible? i
0: speaking to those who know the law. That the law is
1: binding on persons. All persons. Mm-hmm. And so I think the law... In- As he goes, I think you could say
0: So this is, <clears throat> this is basically where I landed. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. This is again Paul, and he's talking about how he becomes all things to all people. And in verse 21, he says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, then in parentheses, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And so the reason I think that's significant is because Paul is basically saying the law of God and the law of Christ are the same thing. These are synonymous terms. And so then if we go back to Romans 7, where he uses this term law of God, I take that to mean the law of God is the same as the law of Christ we've already looked at. So if it's the same, then what he's doing is he's pitting these two things, the law of Christ and the law of sin, against each other. So we don't have the same thing we had in chapter 8, which was the law of works and the law of faith being put versus each other. Now we have this law of Christ versus the law of sin. And if you look up in, in, uh, earlier in chapter 7, he talks a lot about the law. And in verse 13 he says, um, Did that which is good, speaking of the law, bring death to me. So the law that he's talking about here is the 10 commandments. But then when you get down to verse 20 says then he's 20 verse 27 he says <clears throat> so then I find a law to be present. And then when he says find a law, I think he's playing on words. That's not talking about the the covenant the 10 commandments. He's just saying I find this to be true and he's playing on this term, I find it to be a law. <clears throat> and the law that he finds is when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. I delight in the law of Christ, which is the moral law. That I want to obey them, and every Christian understands that to be true. But I see in my members another law waging war. So at this point, he's just playing on words, in my opinion. I find it to be true that something else is present, taking me captive to the law of sin. And so what I would do is I would say that this law of sin is... Um, in direct contrast to this law of Christ. And so depending on how you look at it, I think for what um, Edward Fisher is trying to do in this book, this law of sin isn't necessary because he's basically saying, which which law are we accountable to obey as Christians? And nobody's going to say the law of sin. So I don't think that it's applicable to what he's trying to do, but it might be helpful, and I, I haven't read through the book, so he might even talk about this passage later, But I do think it could be helpful to look at all of these, you know, the law of works, law of faith, law of Christ, are basically to our relationship to the moral law. So our relationship to the moral law in terms of the covenant of works is I'm trying to keep it by obeying it, trying to gain salvation by obeying it. Our relationship to the moral law in the law of faith is I'm trusting in Christ to obey it for me and to reckon righteousness on my account. And in the law of Of Christ, our relationship to the law is being described as I'm a new being who wants to glorify God by obeying his law. And so I would say that this law of sin is our relationship to the law as believers who are not glorified yet, who are not completely sanctified. So Thomas Boston doesn't really go into it. So I don't know if pressed with the question of, well, what do you think about this law of sin and our relationship to the moral law as people who still sin? Do you think that deserves a fourth law? I don't know what he would say. It might just be that he, it wasn't necessary for what he was writing. Yeah,
1: it's
0: interesting. Some interesting fathers actually have law. Yeah, and some have three. Yeah. So all that to say, I'm not trying to say that. Edward Fisher, Thomas Boston are wrong. I think anytime you say, you, you try to say, you know, there are these three laws, it takes a lot to support it. But I think it's really helpful to set it up in that dynamic of, <clears throat> so we have the law of works and the law of faith, and they're diametrically opposed to each other. And we also have the law of Christ and the law of sin, and these are present in the believer, and they're diametrically opposed to each other. And that helps us get a, a, an understanding of when it says, am I accountable to the law? Okay, and we mean that by the Ten Commandments, the moral law. That's why <clears throat> Evangelist in this case says, well, that's a little more complicated than that. Depends on what your relationship to it is and what you mean by being accountable to it. So let's turn to, uh, back to 1 Corinthians chapter nine, because I think this really gives us a good insight into what it means to be under the law, what it means to be accountable to it, and what law? If you look at, uh, starting in verse 19, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I wa- might win more of them. To the Jews I became excuse me. as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Let's just deal with that that phrase or that that concept really quick. So he's talking about to the Jews who are under the law, and we talked about that to be under the law means to be exposed to it and to be accountable to it. Another place that it talks about being under the law is back in Galatians, where it says that Jesus was born under the law. So he was born as a Jew, exposed to it, and accountable to it, because we know that if Christ did not fulfill the whole law, he would not have been a, a perfect representative. Then later on, Paul in Galatians says, do you want to be back under the law? So we see that being under the law, being the moral law, is not a good place to be. But Paul here says, to the Jews, I became as one under the law, though myself I am not under the law. And so what Paul's saying here is, I, I talked to them on on a level they could understand. So they were under the law. They were trying to earn salvation by the law, covenant of works. And so Paul met them where they were as one who knew what it was like to be under the law and reasoned with them from the Old Testament, from the prophets, from Isaiah, um, about eternal life. And then he turns around and he says to those outside the law, and so the opposite of being under the law would be outside the law, and so those are people that are not exposed to the, the physical Ten Commandments. They do have the law of God written on their hearts, but they don't have the full expression of the law of God. So they're outside the law. And he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And so Paul's not saying that he's outside the law, because obviously he's been exposed to it. But he says, I became like one, and that's where I believe that he's saying he reasons with them on a plane of outside the law. That's why when he went to the Greeks and he found, you know, the, the altar to the unknown God, he didn't try to argue from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said, see, you know that there is a God. Let me tell you about it. And so he's saying that when he say I became as like one, he's basically saying I reasoned on the level that they were. But this is where it gets interesting. So he says, I became as one outside the law, and then he says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So here Paul is making a distinction between the law, the moral law, and this law of God, law of Christ. I think that gives a lot of credence to what Edward Fisher is writing. So he's saying, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And so Paul is making a distinction between being under the moral law as a means of gaining righteousness and being under exposed to and accountable under the law of christ so there are two different laws the the commands are the same the ten commandments but it's it's issued in a different way and the relationship is different under one or the other and so but until you become a christian you have not been exposed to the law of christ because the law of christ involves a changing of who you are uh changing of desires gain a new heart and so until you are a Christian you haven't been exposed and you're not accountable in that way Um, the law of Christ is a law proper because it is given um, do this or this now it's not what I would call an eschatological law because it doesn't promise life but it does give commands and the penalties are the fatherly discipline of God if you do not obey the commands you will be disciplined Whereas the law of faith isn't necessarily a law proper, and I would argue as well the law of sin isn't, if we wanted to call that a law, wouldn't be a law proper because there are no... um, It would be a law proper. It wouldn't be an eschatological law, if that makes sense. Because the penalties... So if we're going to frame the law of sin as opposed to the law of Christ as a believer, when you obey the law of sin, the penalties are not death. The penalties are fatherly discipline. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I show So, one last thing that I want to look at, um, Thomas Boston, his description of these laws, um, phrased them in terms of covenant. And so... Um, When I first read his description, he described the law of works as the covenant of works, and he described the law of faith as the covenant of faith. He didn't describe the law of Christ in view of a covenant, and I think that's because the law of Christ um, is a part of the covenant of faith. So I think it's helpful to, to just... Recap. This is something that Caleb talks about all the time, so I know this will be um, something you're familiar with. Just recap the covenants. And and one thing that's, I believe, helpful when you're looking at the covenant, because there are, I wouldn't say there's a lot, but there are several covenants. You have uh, the covenant of works given in the garden. Adam, if you obey, you'll be granted life. If you disobey, you will receive death. Uh, Then you have the covenant with Abraham where he is promised uh, to become a great nation. The offspring is also promised. Uh, before even that, you've got the Noahic covenant. Um, you've also got the Davidic covenant. You've got the Mosaic covenant. So there's a lot of covenants given. And so when you're looking at these, I find it helpful to look at them in uh, in two categories. And you can help me out. I haven't really been able to find a good term for this. I call it either a temporal or an eschatological covenant, meaning eschatological meaning the end times so i I don't want to call it a salvific covenant because the covenant of works wasn't given as a salvific covenant because it was given before the fall so i don't think it would be accurate to call it a salvific covenant but i would call it anything that has to do with um the end i would call it eschatological covenant because it's having to do with man um, entering into their final state so we look at that and say salvation be- because we're after the fall. But if you're looking at it before the fall, you're looking at the yeah, eschatology. The
1: eschatology as well as the right.
0: So I suppose you could put it in the category of is this a covenant of life or is it a... Use that term, that yeah, is it a, a covenant that has... Um, well, it's funny, in Romans 7 Paul has that phrase of passing where he says
1: did the commandment that promised life mm-hmm. produce death, and
0: death,
1: and death Right. There you go. So, the so you, are
0: written for Adam. The first question is, is it a covenant of life or is it a, a temporal covenant? And so... Um, you would look at the covenant, uh, say the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant didn't promise eternal life. It promised that he wouldn't flood the earth again. So that's a temporal covenant. The next question you want to ask, you want to ask, is is it eternal life or is it temporal? Then, is it a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? If you look at the Noahic Covenant, there was nothing required of Noah. So he didn't say do this and you'll get this. So that made it a gracious covenant. So in the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, it gets a little more complicated because there are two things promised. Or more than two, but basically two, two separate things. Abraham is promised a great yeah, land and a great people, but then also is promised the offspring. And later on in the New Testament, it's very clear that this is not talking about, it's not offsprings, it's not multiple, it's talking about one offspring, namely Jesus Christ. So you have in this one Abrahamic covenant both, a temporal promise, and an eternal life promise. But again, the covenant with Abraham was a gracious covenant because there was no do this and you will get this. Whereas the covenant of works, we see that it is first tier, it is a covenant of life, and it is a covenant of works because it's do this or this will happen, or do this to gain this. Yeah, I just
1: the promise
0: So that's most clearly seen in the Mosaic Covenant, yeah. and I think this is where a lot of people really get into trouble. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I don't, I don't see anything in the Mosaic Covenant as being a covenant of life.
1: Well, it's definitely a prefiguration in ceremony, the ceremonial laws that are part of right. that covenant. What
0: Christ is going yeah, it, it definitely pictures uh, yeah. what the new covenant will be. It does and. It, but it offers, it offers no life. I guess, ceremonial cleanliness.
1: And they can keep their spot in the land and
0: not have as national judgments they are obedient. Right, which but is all...
1: beyond that, I don't think that it their spirits. It didn't make their right. consciences even affected.
0: Yeah. And so there, there's... So it a... completely a carnal covenant. Yes. There's a lot of people today, even... Even outside of the, the Presbyterian circles, there's a lot of Baptists today who will say that the Mosaic law was a salvific covenant. Oh. That if... And, and that and that, I, I don't... I don't know if I've ever heard it out of MacArthur's mouth, but what he says, and, and since he's a dispensationalist, so it wouldn't surprise me, right. but the way that he talks makes it sound very much like the covenant of Moses was presented as if you keep this law, obey offer these sacrifices, keep yourself pure, that is the way that you get salvation. And the way that they get around that being uh, works-based is they say that they were doing it in faith. They were keeping the covenant out of faith. But, that still doesn't get around the fact that you're saying that if, if you do this, if you accomplish this, you will earn eternal life. It's the same way that people today say, you know, if... Yeah, if you... Pray a prayer if you believe. They talk about faith as a work that we produce to earn salvation. And so I think that's a, a common misconception is that the, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was a covenant of eternal life. When the covenant of Moses was just, here is God's law presented to you in written down form. Okay, so even there was no if you keep these laws you will earn life because our federal head, Adam, had already failed to do that. So there was no life promise. That was just God's expectation. And the reward offered in the Mosaic Law was, if you do this, you will dwell in the land and be secure and be safe. And so it was a temporal covenant that did not offer life, but it was a covenant of works. Do this and you will dwell in the land safely. And so I think those are, are helpful to look at when you look at the Law of Works what we mean is the covenant of works. When we look at the law of faith, what we mean is the new covenant of faith. And I think when it gets to the law of Christ, so in the same way that um, the Abrahamic covenant was a dual covenant, if you obey me, I will give you this land, you'll become a great nation, you will dwell secure. So there was a temporal works aspect to it, and then there was a only gracious eternal life aspect to it. And so in the covenant of, in the new covenant, I see both there. We have a gracious covenant of eternal life. Christ has accomplished the work. Believe on him and you will be saved. And then there is also a temporal um, covenant of works side. And we call that the law of Christ. Because that law is obey and you will not have um, fatherly discipline. Does not promise health or wealth or safety as the Mosaic law did, Um, but it is a covenant of works in the sense that there is a law to be obeyed, the Ten Commandments, and there are penalties. They're not um, eternal life penalties, but he says, if you disobey me, you will experience the displeasure of the Father and he will discipline you in order to bring you back um, to doing right. Does that make sense? Ryan's thinking. I'm just
1: careful to talking about covenants. First two covenants in the kingdom of creation Adam and Noah. You go to the next three covenants from Abraham to David.
0: Mm-hmm. There are going to be no more covenants mm-hmm. with anybody else. Um, and we are in the last hour. The The kingdom of Christ is being built in the earth. Um,
1: work is being done, and a final installment is the only thing we're to waiting for. Mm-hmm. So, being at the Eskalah. life, now you can do this. Mm-hmm. And the penalty, if you don't, is mm-hmm. following us. So, for me, that's kind of the whole scope I've talked to you before. It's like, you know, covenant means law and promise together. Mm-hmm. Proper. proper. Yeah. So, if there's a separate covenant of faith, there has to be a law and a promise together for it to be considered. A covenant, but I guess you're not.
0: Yes, okay. yes. So the law of faith is, is the Robert new covenant. Is the <laughs> <clears throat> and so it, it is really tricky because you don't want to, you don't want to, as pertains to the promise of life, there is nothing about that that can be gained by works. Right. So if you're going to say anything about the new covenant being in terms of works at all, it does not pertain to eternal life. So in the, in the same sense that um, when God promised Abraham the land, that was um, a promise underneath the promise of the offspring that served to pave the way for the offspring, if that makes sense. So it, it's not a separate covenant. It's within the same covenant that God promised Abraham Christ, but it serves to pave the way for that end goal, that eternal promise. And so I'm saying in the same way um, that the new covenant promises eternal life, that is the goal. There is within that promise, um, a, can't think of another way to say it besides a covenant of works within that covenant, where in the same way that God promised Abraham the land, but gave stipulations of staying in it, um, we are promised eternal life and the never failing, never wavering, um. Full expression of God's favor at the eschaton when we are glorified and Christ um, fulfills completely the covenant. But until then, there is a covenant of works, air quotes, that serves that end goal to sanctify us. And it is if you obey the law, you will experience the fatherly pleasure of God. And if you break God's law as a Christian, you will experience the fatherly displeasure of God urging you on to sanctification and your final glorification. Does that make sense? I haven't fleshed out the terms because anytime you talk about a covenant of works or any kind of works in in relation to the new covenant, you have to really explain yourself well to not be heretical. But does it, does it make sense where I'm going with that? I think just
1: the word standard You know, yes. we, we are promised to endure to the end to mm-hmm. because of the very provision given he was So, um, you know, just in Jeremiah 1, it says that I would put the fear of me in you, mm-hmm. and I will cause you to walk of grace, whereas just their law is basically useless.
0: Right. And that is the distinction between the law of works and the law of Christ. Right. The the stipulations are the same. The requirements are the same. It's the Ten Commandments. Right. But it, it they are achieved from a completely different motivation and they are achieved from a, di- a totally different um, foundation of ability. Because as a new creation you now have an ability that you did not have before you were a new creation. Yeah,
1: because just the word "error" law. I think there's a mm-hmm. standard in yeah. penalty.
0: And uh, you know, there is a standard in penalty within the new covenant if you just look at All right, so just to, to wrap up and to um, to put all of this in, in a more practical light, these distinctives um, that we are, are, are talking about, these three laws, are helpful for this reason. We were all accountable under the law of works as a means of achieving eternal life. And we all failed in Adam to uphold that standard. And so we all were condemned by the law of works, um, deserving of punishment. And then God graciously cut the covenant or the law of faith on our behalf and Christ kept the covenant of works, he fulfilled every law that we failed to, and then as a provision of the covenant, imputed that righteousness to us, to where we are now seen by God as having upheld and kept the covenant of works through Christ, and our faith unites us to him, and we are given the reward that Adam would have achieved because of what Christ did. And now, because of our standing in Christ, we are enabled to uphold the law of, well, the law, the Ten Commandments, from a place of union with Christ where he enables us to live rightly and uphold the Ten Commandments for his glory from a heart of wanting to please our Father and graciously disciplines us when we fail to uphold that law, in order to to push us and goad us on to um, our glorified state, which we will inherit completely um, at the closing of this age and the dawning of the next. And so, all of that is just to remind us that there is a moral law. We failed to keep it. Christ kept it for us, and then enabled us to keep it um, from a place of love and regenerate heart and whether or not this is necessary for Edward Fisher I want to point out that it is a reality that we will break it there is still a law of sin in our members that causes us um, to leave and turn away from the good law that was given to us but even there Christ is good to us to discipline us and to bring us back Um, to obedience and the best part is one day that internal struggle will be destroyed we will be glorified and in the eschaton in the new age there will be no inner struggle we will only ever love and obey Christ from a pure heart and receive the full expression continuously of his affection towards us so be encouraged Uh, let's pray Father, the the story that you have woven throughout the Bible is beautiful, even if it didn't apply to us. Father, we know the angels look with great anticipation at what you are doing here on earth. And so, Father, even if this was not applied to us, it is still beautiful and worthy of glory and honor. But, Father, it is doubly precious to us because it is is—it is our story. It is the truth of our condition. It is the reality of the great love that you have shown to us that we, while we were still sinners, you died for us. Father, I pray that the truth that we've heard a hundred times would seep into our inmost being. Father, that it would It would convict us of even the wrong heart that we have right now, any sins that we are not letting go of, that we're holding tightly to. Father, I pray that the goodness of your gospel would cut through that, convict us. Father, that it would spur us on to to greater good deeds. God, that we would look for opportunities to glorify you by upholding your law, by doing good to others. Father, I pray. For the service that we're about to begin, Father, that you would be glorified by the music that we sing to you, that you would be glorified in the sermon that Ryan preaches, that you'd be glorified in the ways that we um, attempt to live out that sermon in our lives this week. Father, may you receive all the glory and honor. Thank you for what you've done in Christ on our behalf. And it is in his name that we come to you, that we ask these things, and that we pray, amen.